Hello and welcome to this episode of the course. My name is Dr. Dave O'Brien. Um, I work at the University of Edinburgh on various um, culture and kind of inequality related things. Um, and I guess by training, um, I'm, a, I'm a sociologist. I'm going to be in charge of weeks three and four of the course, this, this block where we try and think about cultural consumption and cultural production together, um, both in terms of some general trends, but also in terms of the relationship to whether we'd call it kind of social inequality, uh, questions of social stratification, whatever sort of language we, we, we think is, is appropriate for describing uh, what cultural production, cultural consumption tells us about contemporary society. This week is the Cultural Consumption Week, and I'm absolutely delighted um, that um, the real kind of European expert, uh, Dr. Laurie Hankinay, is going to be talking with me um, on various uh, subjects related to cultural consumption. So um, welcome to this week's session, Laurie, um, and I guess you'd like to say a little bit about um, who you are and what your research agenda is. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, and thank you for calling me an expert. Um, I'm still not sure I am one, but I guess I know a little bit about stuff. Um, I'm Laurie Enquinet. So, um, I used to work in the UK. I've, I've worked in, I, I worked in the UK for nine years. I worked at the University of York as a lecturer and as a senior lecturer. But, um, recently I came back home to my wonderful university called Université Libre de Bruxelles. And I'm um, uh, what is called a chargé de cours there, which is the, I think, the equivalent of associate professor, I think. And I'm teaching various courses, uh, but those that are probably interesting to those who listen, who listen to that podcast is I'm teaching about culture, globalization, inequalities, and I'm also teaching about arts and stratification. So I guess I'm an expert ish in um in cultural consumption and um social stratification oh don't don't, don't be so modest i think um you know your work actually as, as we're going to see when we talk about the readings and when we consider i guess what the contemporary patterns um of cultural consumption are um your work is really really crucial here um and i'm delighted we get to uh we get to discuss this I suppose the place where we could start off um, is with a kind of so what question, a, a sort of like, why should we care about cultural consumption? You know, why is it uh, maybe um, sociologically uh, interesting? And, and I don't know, actually, if, you know, you, you might suggest a few ways that cultural consumption is um, interesting for uh, social science research before we unpack what we know through the, the four readings we've suggested this week. Yeah, um, so it's a huge topic, isn't it? I would say cultural consumption uh, is probably interesting in itself and for itself, um, especially if you are interested in the aesthetic values that underpins our society. But I also think that cultural consumptions are really interesting because it relates to actually um, a lot of different areas in, in, in our societies. Uh, a few examples include, obviously, social inequalities, um, and we'll probably um, discuss how cultural consumption is involved in the production and reproduction of social inequalities, 
how it relates to a class distinction, um, stages distinction, but also um, differences in terms of genders, race, ethnicities, age, and so on. It is also um, important because it relates to um, to other areas. And recently I've seen how it can relate to uh, the um, constitution of identity and, for instance, uh, European identity. Um, so it can relate to um, the formation of wider, uh, what we call supranational identities. So that's just to mention a few um, areas where cultural consumption can be important. Yeah, and, and I mean... Again, you know, your recent work around these questions of, of identity has been been crucial here. And I guess I'd um, sort of flag up um, for our listeners, our participants, students. If that's a kind of big macro approach or understanding of why cultural consumption is important, I'm quite interested in um, American research that tries to connect up cultural consumption with things like how people end up in professional jobs, um, how it is that the kind of culture that we like and we're interested in um, is something that gets translated um, as a resource or, or, or as like a as a capital that people can almost, to extend that kind of metaphor, that people can almost kind of spend um, to get into particular occupations, particular elite spaces, particular educational institutions and I guess this is at the very kind of like heart of the sociological project around culture is this sense of you know that moment that combines someone's sense of identity the sense of themselves but also how we might kind of scientifically study um, whether we'd call it you know uh, resources or or, or capitals but you know this uh, sense of possessing something with culture and this is something you really get into uh, with one of the readings that we've selected this week, which is your inequalities when culture becomes a capital uh, book chapter that's uh, published in, in a book um, called the Routledge Handbook of Global Cultural Policy. And, and on that, it'd be really interesting um, to know if you could like sort of sketch out maybe this sense of what are we talking about when we're talking about cultural capital and maybe actually how that might have changed over time, because that directly relates to our our other three readings. Yeah. So um, cultural capital is um, a notion that has been widely used. It, it comes from Bourdieu's work on cultural distinction. There are various forms of cultural capital. You've got an institutionalized one, which refers to diplomas and degrees, um, you have objectified who can actually relate to things as uh, simple as the number of, bo- of books you have in, in your home. But also you have what is, I think, the most important one, um, the embodied cultural capital. So the embodied cultural capital is literally inscribed on your body in a way. So it's the kind, it's the ways you think, it's the way you, you appreciate art, culture, is the way you um, you is your your schemes of uh, appreciation, the way you perceive the world uh, more um, largely. So the embodied cultural capital is quite important because this is um, how it's going to structure your taste, 
your practices. So, for instance, if you have uh, if you have a taste for um, hydroculture, so you, if you have the if you if you have the habitus which is related to cultural capital to like um, um, high arts, then you will probably develop the taste for museums, um, for going to an art show, uh, going to the theaters, um, and so on. So the embodied cultural capital is important because it's related to um, forms of um, cultural, um, a, a series of activities, and traditionally it has to relate it to what has been called to hybrid culture. So hydroculture is also an important uh, an important term because uh, over the years I think and that's why I argue in that chapter is that it has changed its meaning has changed uh, and we have to remind ourselves of that. So in the past it related to very traditional classical um, practices and taste, so taste for musical for classical music for um, uh, very hybro essays. Um, um, very, very kind of classic, um, classic, um, theaters, uh, plays and stuff like that. Uh, but what I argue in that chapter is that we have to think about how hydroculture can actually now involve perhaps what's, what I can summarize as the best of pop culture. Um, so it could, uh, involve, for instance, a very good comic books. It could involve, um, also, um, you know, um, new sports activities such as yoga and so on. So feel free to jump in on that, Dave, if you think you want to ask a question more particularly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting this, that, and this, you know, kind of brings in, um, the uh, Hazir and, and Ward chapter uh, about the cultural omnivore thesis. Um, and it also directly connects to um, Sam Friedman and, and Aaron Reeves's um, paper in American Sociological Review, that it's not so much just the question of kind of like how we define high culture, but it's also this question of, of how this has kind of changed over time and how it's dynamic. And I guess what you'd outlined, that vision of kind of uh, high culture, um, it, it's funny, yeah, isn't it, that, you know, I guess it, it's one of those things that everybody kind of knows, but also when we start to think socially, scientifically, we get into these questions of, like, how do we measure it? And, you know, in some measurements, it does become as crude as numbers of books on shelves, you know, in the childhood home and stuff like this. But when we think about this vision of uh, high or elite culture, it's it's very much, I guess, the kind of the vision that Bourdieu has in distinction. And I know um, students will have encountered um, some of those ideas on the first couple of weeks of the course. Now, the big um, challenge to this, or, or or maybe the kind of the big moment in the debate, that whether it's you know kind of correct or not, and we'll talk about that. But the big moment in the debate uh, comes from the United States in the early 1990s, which is, I guess, quite a different vision of what elite culture and elite cultural practices might be through this idea of the omnivore. And, and maybe I'll do a little uh, bit of explaining about that. Um, and obviously, like, feel free to jump in um, and, and correct me um, if I'm wrong about this. Um, can I just add one thing before you do that? Yeah, of course. 
I just thought that I might have forgotten to mention one very important um, idea is the idea of disposition. So, um, and especially the idea of aesthetic disposition. Um, so when we call, when we talk about embodied cultural capital, we often refer to um, what is called the aesthetic disposition, which is, if I take um, Lizardo's wo- uh, word, um, it's more the, um, the ability to decode the formal structure of the cultural work. So it's the ability to find, to, to understand, to, to understand the meaning of uh, different uh, work of, works of art, the capacity of appreciating it, and it's all obviously related to knowledge. Um, and what is important uh, nowadays uh, is that this aesthetic disposition um, can actually be applied to, as I said, more popular forms of art. So that means that if you read, uh, for instance, a comic book, you are, if you do have a, 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 an aesthetic disposition, you have the ability to to decode it in a very, um, in a very uh, would I say intellectual way? You can decode its meaning. You can uh, judge the the, um, the formal aspect of it. You can judge the design. You have different tools and ability to kind of uh, um, d- discuss it in a way. And that also applies to even um, um, as Bevskex showed that even applies to very popular uh, very popular forms of culture such as TV reality shows where there's a big difference between those who actually can take distance of it, but in an ironic way, so that, and especially people from higher classes, who can actually say, almost intellectualize their taste for TV, for reality TV, while others actually just watch it for what it is, you know, just fun and entertainment. I just thought it would it, it was important to, to talk about that aesthetic disposition before we move on to omnivore. No, I, 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 absolutely, and um, I think a lot of the really amazing work in this space is engaged precisely uh, with that. Um, I'm thinking about, say, uh, Seamus Khan's work um, on how younger uh, elites in the United States have these, you know, in, incredibly sort of, as you say, you know, sort of intellectualized, engaged ways of of thinking about particular cultural forms. I, I can't remember the exact quote from his book, but it's, you know, something like um, Beowulf and uh, Jaws are given, you know, almost the kind of like same status in the cultural hierarchy because um, they're treated with the same levels of intellectual engagement, the same levels of like articulation and um, commitment, even if they are in some ways you know, very different um, cultural forms. Although thinking about um, your paper on um, when inequality, uh, when culture becomes a capital, that book chapter that we assigned this week, you're quite interested as well in how the very hierarchies themselves change over time. Um, One of the things I'm I'm going to be doing in the session next week is talking to Jennifer Lena. Um, and her work is really great, actually, on illustrating how it's kind of weird that we talk about a popular film as, you know, anything other than elite cultures, because, you know, these art forms, um, particularly films that have got big name 
famous male directors attached to them have been like consecrated and kind of canonized cinema is you know really obviously a sort of a legitimate art form um it's no longer i guess as as it might have been in bourdieu's time along with photography it's no longer a kind of like middle brow um aesthetic category yeah and this is one of the things that is maybe like wonderful about doing research in this um, in this area but it's also kind of annoying <laughs> as well because you know you're sort of forever uh thinking through you know how are these aesthetic categories factoring into particular hierarchies how do they change over time and kind of who drives that change and the aesthetic disposition i think you're you're right is absolutely uh kind of crucial to um to understand in this well, I think you're right, and and I think a very good example is uh, is uh, rap rap music and hip hop. Um, if you actually think about Kendrick Lamar um, uh, Pulitzer Prize, so he's been canonized as almost, I mean, as hyper and leg- legitimate. So it's it's very interesting of how that music that was supposed to come really uh you know for the from the people and perhaps for the people in a way um so that music that was popular in its in its in, in its essence became involved in very hyper cultural profiles um so that's quite telling and then that's the difficulty as well and i'll probably say a word about that a little bit later when we talk about Irmax, um karademir ayazir's and ward's papers uh, about how to measure um, the value. I mean, if you talk about omnivorousness, you need to talk about how to measure it and how to measure it relate to how do you value, into bracket, the different um, cultural genres and activities. Yeah, I mean, that that's an absolutely perfect way of setting up uh, this uh, question actually about uh, the changing um, hierarchies, and also, you know, music is um, the, the big category that um, I guess founded, um, or maybe was the driver um, for this idea of the omnivore. So, to give a kind of quick recap, you know, that aesthetic uh, disposition associated with um, a quite perhaps rigid cultural hierarchy. Uh, in France um, when Bourdieu was was writing and and researching. In the United States in the early 1990s, um, Peterson, who's who's maybe the kind of key researcher along with with colleagues, found that that um, homology, if if, if that's the technical term we might use, but that relationship between the social location um, of an individual and their particular kind of interests in whatever cultural forms, position in the cultural hierarchy didn't seem to be as kind of uh, rigid or, or as closely related um, in America in the 90s. And, and in particular, there seemed to be this sense, and, and it's interesting actually, the um, Azir and, and, and Ward uh, chapter is, is fantastic on really uh, sort of digging down into this, but it, it's interesting how. Um, the precise language isn't really there uh, in, in the Peterson work, but there seems to be a suggestion that what's going on is that what we'd call American elites, you know, so our upper middle classes are not only consuming 
maybe classical music, maybe uh, traditional elite forms of music, but are also quite open to liking and being interested in, you know, pop music, rock music, um, this kind of stuff. Interestingly, you know, there's a really key paper by uh, Bryson that kind of says, well, actually, even within this open attitude, there are still definitely, you know, kind of formal cleavages. And that example of rap music that you give is is really important there because in the 1990s, at least, you know, we see, you know, a, a divide that is driven, I guess, by, you know, kind of um, racism and, and the racial divide in America of, of elites still being, you know, quite, uh, sort of sniffy, still being quite, you know, cautious about about liking rap. But this, you know, consumption of everything in the musical world, the omnivore, you know, the, the, the individual that eats or consumes everything, seems to be a big challenge both to the um, cultural hierarchies in Budgie's work, but also, um, I guess as well, to the idea of what the aesthetic disposition is and what the um, the kind of like correct um, way of engaging with and, and, and kind of liking culture was. But, and this maybe is kind of interesting on a technical sociological level, the debate that followed, and it is a massive debate, and, and one of the reasons I guess we both uh, were interested in that book chapter is trying to summarise as much the debate and, you know, the kind of the, the productivity of uh, academic research, you know, as much as the sort of the sides or, or, or the camps in the debate. But the debate that followed seemed to say, well, actually, you know, even if there is a change in consumption practices and a change in the aesthetic disposition, there's still lines of division demarcation and crucially lines of distinction uh, going on in contemporary society, whether it's in America or whether it's in Europe. Yeah, that's, that, that is for sure. I guess um, my chapter is a bit about that um, as well. I try to show um, that omnivorousness is definitely not the the synonym of cultural democracy, but um, I can go back to that a little bit better, uh, a little bit later perhaps. Um, I just wanted to say a word about um, Azir's and Ward's paper um, and chapters, actually. Um, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful chapter um, in the way it summarizes the main debates and the main point of tensions in that um, around the idea of omnivorousness. So they identify a series of of problems, and I think. Perhaps the most important one is just the definition of omnivorousness. And that has agitated the debate for almost two, three decades now, with actually three. Um, and We're so old now, honestly. Yeah, we are. Um, so it has, it has, yeah, it's, it's, it's still, it's still, I mean, I think it's a bit, it's getting, people are getting a little bit annoyed with the debate now, if I'm being honest. But I also think that it's still there because it's not, we have not solved it. So the issue about what is omnivorousness is, is still is still open. I think one of the problem is perhaps because um, a lot of work on omnivorousness has focused on the methodological issues about how to measure omnivorousness. And you have 
a lot of wonderful paper on that, and 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 uh, uh, Aziers and Wards actually talk about them uh, in a very very uh, insightful way. Um, and actually, even Alan Ward's paper uh, on omnivorousness uh, with um, Gaio uh, with um, Gaio Cal uh, is um, are really good. Actually, if you want if you want to look into more. Uh, in, if you want to look into that debate a little bit more, because they differentiate different forms of omnivorousness, a form of uh, omnivorous by composition, where you actually cross boundaries between high and low, but that involves that you have to define what is high and what is low, and uh, omnivorousness by volume, where it's just the sheer number of different cultural genres you like. So yes, but just to come back to my idea, so a lot of paper has been about methodological sophistication, but as um, Azir and Ward says, there is still very weak um, theoretical underpinnings to the notions. And if there is an area where we still need to work on, it's probably there. Yeah, it, it, it's especially interesting because... I think on a on a level for students, the the methodological debates can be a bit off putting. They're obviously really technical, and uh, I'm going to be quite cautious here because this you know this sort of moderately controversial. But at root, you know what we learn from these debates is that culture is still important in upholding and. Um, you know, drawing social divisions, you know, at least in my understanding of, of the literature, there's literally nobody. I mean, even Peterson in the initial formulation um, of the omnivore is conscious that there's a, a new divide in American society between this omnivore and then um, parts of American society that don't have these same um forms of eclectic or open uh, cultural taste patterns. And, I mean, it, it'd be interesting, like, if you know of, of anyone who, you know, in the literature is saying, oh, culture is totally not to do with social divisions anymore. You know, I, I think sociology starts from the idea that culture is basically bound up with social divisions and social inequality. The real question is how exactly this functions and how exactly we can kind of detect it in society and thus you know what we may or or may not do about it and on that i think um patricia banks's um paper is is really really crucial actually um in two ways the first is um she shows how um what we might think of as kind of you know traditional elite cultural forms even as they're grounded in the context of a more um, eclectic pattern of consumption and a less hierarchical cultural system uh, of the United States, how elite or traditional, high, whatever you want to call them, cultural forms are really crucial to um, the black middle class in America trying to ensure that their um, families, their kids still get the best kind of life chances, still get uh, you know, decent social positions. So, you know, in, in that conception, the use of, of culture, whether it's conscious or, or not, and, and in Banks's work, it really is very, very conscious. 
the the use of culture is still crucial to how people kind of you know compete in unequal societies like America. But also at the same time, she brings in this question um, of race. You know, in in the states, um, race is this crucial dividing line, as it is actually in many uh, societies around the globe. And it's interesting how you know we've talked, I guess, about what we'd call social class or social status, you know, the stratification of, of cultural tastes and cultural interests. Banks brings in uh, this other uh, dividing line, this other way of, of viewing social divisions. But crucially, she says, but look, culture still matters here. Culture is still important in how um, America's unequal society functions. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I don't know a lot of people who are saying that culture is not involved in the production and reproduction of social inequalities. I try actually, there was a, a debate on Twitter about that the other day, and I tried to scratch my head to, um, to, to come up with names. I think perhaps some postmodernists have, have tried to argue for that kind of point of view. But if you are an empirical sociologist, you, um, you, can't really you can't really agree with the idea that culture uh is just you know uh involved in in anything how could i phrase it culture is involved in equalities and you can't really say that um you know culture is uh a big buffet where whatever you taste don't doesn't really matter <laughs> so. yeah I'm, i mean to, just to, to come in it, it's tricky because this is and we're veering into sort of cultural policy worlds now, but this is one of the, the big tensions, I guess, between yeah, where you see sure. government saying culture is awesome, we need to get as many people into museums and galleries and classical music concerts and theatre, and it's good for you in many ways, whereas, as, as you point out, empirical sociology is saying, hang on, <laughs> like, you know, culture is really bound up uh, with a lot of uh, inequalities, you know, culture might be bad for you, uh, as a recent book title claims. Oh, I wonder what's that book. <laughs> you want to say a couple of phrases on that book because I think it's quite important. I know you're, go- you're going to talk about it next time, but I think just if you could summarize in a couple of sentences, that that would be great. Yeah, I mean, the the, the point of the book uh, that I've written with uh, with Mark Taylor and Anorian Brook is is precisely. Um, what what you've been um, kind of drawing attention to actually, and and in particular the tension between how you know seemingly uh, we are in this moment where hierarchies have like collapsed, um, where it's incredibly rare that you'll get explicit forms of kind of snobbishness expressed, particularly by elites, and indeed actually there's there's you know an interesting niche now we can see in. Um, contemporary um, Anglophone uh, writing in Britain, Australia, and America, where the assertion of snobbishness has become a sort of like run upon. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of how, like, you know, it, it's like this kind of like, um, you know, sort of controversial, almost kind of like, you know, it's bad uh, taste. If you show it, it's bad taste. Yeah, no, it, it, exactly, and. You know, the people who are kind of showing the snobbishness are, you know, at such a kind of high level in uh, 
the cultural field where they're like explicitly able to say, I know this is bad taste. I'm doing it anyway because I want to be like, you know, controversial. I want to cross boundaries. I want to scandalize or offend or, or whatever. Whereas actually like the bulk of it, you know, kind of elite positions now is very much, are people just like what they like? Taste is individual. You know, we should never judge anyone's kind of interest. Whilst at the same time, judgments are going on, you know, kind of like slyly and, and sort of like surreptitiously, I guess. No, I, ju- I just think that cultural relativization is actually a dangerous um, ideology. It's a, it's a very dangerous ideology to think that um, tastes don't matter. It's problematic a bit. It's a bit like meritocracy in a way. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And and again, you know, we're, we're discussing this at the moment where, you know, the idea of meritocracy as a, as a problem for society is, you know, is very much um, on various sorts of agendas. And I think actually this is a really great um, way to sort of wrap up our discussion of the four readings. When we think about uh, Sam Friedman and, and Aaron, Aaron Reeves' paper, and, and just to give you a, a sort of an overview, I suggested uh, this paper for this week's reading for a couple of reasons. One is because it shows exactly the kind of historical trend um, that we've been discussing today, whereby English elites were what you'd think of as kind of like pretty snobbish (laughs) through their semi-public expressions within this big book called Who's Who, which is a kind of record of um, who elites are and what they do, which is published um, in the UK, but there are versions of it all over the world as well. But by the time we get to, you know, kind of modern times, so, you know, kind of the 1970s, 80s, 1990s elites, we're seeing this shift whereby elites are like not snobbish. They're not only saying that they're interested in kind of, you know, contemporary culture like film, going to concerts, you know, they're, I guess, what we'd think of as omnivores, but they're also able to kind of, you know, play with the form of how elites are supposed to or are expected to express themselves. So that paper gives you, I guess, a neat uh, kind of historical map of um, the sociological debates that we've uh, been talking about. And again, you know, it it maybe gives some clues about how we might uh, define the omnivore as well. But at the same time, it's, uh, I think, quite methodologically distinct. And and maybe we could sort of wrap up um, on this this point. The classic way of thinking about taste, and and correct me if I'm wrong, is by doing surveys about what people maybe like and dislike, or what kind of events they've gone to, or what sort of cultural practices they do, you know, as participants, uh, whether it's in the home or with others. Freeman and Reeves use um, what is essentially a kind of a data set of people's self-descriptions about their tastes. Um, and they've done it by kind of scraping um, data from this who's who website. And I, I was interested in, you know, how even where we've got new methods that are driven by uh, what we would think of as, I guess, big data, you know, and, and kind of new um, computational sociological tools, we're still getting the same kinds of results. 
Well, yeah, the story keeps repeating itself. Um, and again, we're going back to the idea that um, culture matters and actually still matters and that um, in a way there shouldn't even be a debate about it. Um, and uh, yes, you're right. There's been a very new interest in uh, methodology, um, these big data things and so on, but uh, we all come up with the same kind of ideas culture practice is entrenched in inequalities um not only class inequalities but also in other forms of um, social differentiation and division and i think again because perhaps we didn't give the we, we could give a little bit more attention to bank's paper um as well um it's it's a very important paper because um she not only shows that Bourdieu's concept cultural transmission in a way so the transmission of cultural capital is actually still relevant but not only it's still relevant it's actually relevant for uh, groups of people that we haven't really um, looked at um, carefully or closely enough so for instance for um, uh, racial and ethnic minorities so um, she does really shows that what Bourdieu, sh- what Bourdieu showed in France in the 70s actually applies in the US and for black middle class uh, for black middle classes so um, that's uh, I think a very important result um, she also demonstrates that they want trans so they want to really how is the word they want to cultivate their children's taste but not to definitely legitimate culture but also to black legitimate culture uh, and I think that's an important point so she kind um, I wouldn't say fill a gap because there's so much to fill it that she can't possibly believe do it on her own uh, but she definitely bring very important insight into the debate uh, about cultural capital uh, and its link to race um, and ethnicities and I just wanted to also say a word about you know, but because I know you you know it well as well. But Ali Mekji's work, if I pronounce that correctly, is is essential. You know, encoding and decoding cultural capital, and I think you've read it. Yeah, his um, his book um, is 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 fantastic actually, and it's definitely worth following up um, if students are are interested. Not actually only in questions of uh, race racial inequality and culture, but also actually just in general for a bit like banks, actually, um, maybe a, a defense or um, a, uh, a use of the kind of Budgesian approach, the Budgesian uh, project um, in a way that, you know, sort of reminds people of uh, the relevance of, of work, which, I guess, you know, when you kind of go back and read Distinction, and we we probably differ on this, but like you go back and read Distinction and it's like it's really heavy in the English translation. Um, it's, you know, pretty dense. And, and it feels like like a lost world in some ways, you know. And, and there are, I think, you know, important questions about, well, is this still relevant? You know, like not just kind of questions of, uh, say racial inequality or, or gender inequality, which which Budgie is perhaps not strong on in his empirical material, but also the feeling of what France was like then and what 
contemporary societies like now. But both banks um, and, and, and Meiji's work shows, you know, why Bodger might be, you know, kind of ultra relevant um, to contemporary society. I think they show, and others have shown that as well, is that what matters in Bourdieu's work is the the concepts and the mechanism it put forwards. So the concept of cultural capital is clearly still very vibrant and still very needed because it is so important if you want to understand how cultural hierarchies are involved in social stratification and including, as you said, the formation of elites. Um, Habitus, you know, it's also very uh, important. Um, and, um, you know, the mechanism of reproduction more generally and how people try to distinguish themselves from others. Um, and definitely, it's clear from our discussion is that they have find new ways to do so. Um, but the mechanism of social distinction is still very out there. Yeah, m- m- maybe I'd sort of conclude or summarize our discussion by saying, you know, social distinction, as you've just said, absolutely still matters and is still there. That said, though, cultural hierarchies have changed, even where the people who are at the top of the social order might still have have stayed the same. And our concluding point, I guess, is one thing that maybe uh, draws a lot of criticism from people outside of sociology. And, and, you know, this is justified or, or, or not. But is this question of what about like the cultural object? You know, what about maybe we call it like the intrinsic value of a cultural object? You know, uh, for some people framing elite cultural um, practices, it's the idea of, you know, Beethoven's Ninth as an anthem of the European Union is, um, you know, a transcendent um, cultural um, artifact that speaks to common humanity in a way that, like, Metallica does not <laughs> or, you know, Slipknot could never do. Um, or indeed, actually, maybe, you know, for some people would say Kendrick Lamar, you know, couldn't do despite his uh, consecration. Um, what about then this, you know, question of, like, where are, like, actual cultural objects, practices and artefacts in our, uh, our sociology of culture? Well, I do have a, a specific take on this, and I prob- it's probably not the, the take of everyone. Um, I do believe that um, there are intrinsic social, uh, sorry, intrinsic aesthetic values, but there's a caveat. I do also think that they are socially produced and uh, come from a specific social and historical context. So I do think that if you take just the, the simple value of beauty, I think it it has an effect on us and how we choose what we like to listen, what we like to read or what we like to look at, uh, painting and so on. Um, so in a way, it's out there, but um, it, it doesn't mean that it has been socially produced. It comes from a specific context uh, that defines specific um, val- values as worthy but once they have been defined as worthy, they, they still have an action on, on our behavior. I don't know if that makes sense. but No, that, that makes perfect sense. And uh, it just made me reflect that um, we, we, you know, we've got through this without disagreeing at all. 
Um, no, but I, I just think that if you take, I think there is an, a hierarchy of aesthetic values that is out there, uh, but I think it's always in a way that exists. Um, but uh, it's always a good, good, good thing to remember that it has all been socially produced. So, yeah, I mean, the less we talk about my hardcore relativist position <laughs> on culture, the better, I think. Just because um, you want to canonize Metallica. Of course, and, and rightly so. Um, as we wrap up. Sorry, but you could justify that in a very hyper way, you know. That's the, the, the new way of the elite. Oh, yeah, of course. And, um, I mean, this is slightly off topic, but um, I, I've been asked a couple of times in, in the context of promoting uh, the Culture is Bad for You book, you know, so what kind of culture have you been sort of consuming in lockdown? How has culture helped you? And it's funny answering those questions because I answer them from the point of view of someone uh, and this, you know, sounds immodest, but it's true. But, you know, someone who is at the top of the cultural hierarchy as, you know, an academic uh, who has this, you know, particular social status, who studies culture. So it's fine for me to be like, yeah, I've been watching Metallica Mondays all summer. Um, I've been watching a lot of Disney Plus, um, you know, reading unbelievably awful spy novels by terrible kind of american writers that are like you know um in no way possible to canonize um even in an ironic and and you know knowing and playful kind of way but at the same time it, you know th there is something to be said for thinking about what are the social conditions in which that might give me a form of cultural capital um and a form of uh, of you know um, how that might be like useful for me in the social struggle for resources and in a way that, you know, others um, from outside of that social position might be actually subject to, you know, whether we'd call it snobbishness or social exclusion uh, or, or, you know, kind of judgments um, about their tastes. Well, I think it relates also to the issue of cultural authorities. Uh, I think we mentioned it a couple of times, but who has the authority to say, "Well, you can watch that; it's not disgraceful." You know, you can, you can, you can listen to that because you know you have people at the top of the scale of the social scale that that do listen to that. So don't worry; you are entitled to do that as well. So this all authority thing is it's a very important. Um, discussion because it's it's always coming back to people's social position i think we could go you know we could do like four or five hours on this and, and, and you know, be, be, be getting into these big big questions but i guess we'll we'll kind of conclude we'll wrap up um by throwing um hopefully some questions as you know kind of assignment or, or discussion questions and, and maybe we'll do four I, I think from what we've been talking about there's definitely a question about is Budgie still useful to us? Um, you know, and we've heard, you know, maybe um, a couple of, of, of sides uh, to that, you know, even when we're dealing with societies that are really, really different. And even actually where the social divisions he was writing about might be, might be different now as well. So that's, that's question one. Question two, we might think about whether this is these distinctions, these demarcations, these divisions, whether they're inevitable, you know, whether there could be a, 
a kind of a, a vision of culture and society that isn't about social divisions or whether elites will like always find ways of using culture to stay at the top of the cultural hierarchy. There's, I guess, a, a general question uh, about, you know, how we get like a kind of a, a definition of the omnivore, uh, how we, you know, we pin that down, whether it's impossible to study sort of scientifically as a social scientist, uh, whether it's, you know, something that's a kind of a useful uh, working kind of hypothesis, but actually, you know, it's something that we should we should drop. So I think that, you know, how do we define the omnivore is a good question. And then finally, um, you know, to you, the the listener, how would you go about studying these issues? You know, L- Laurie and I have mentioned methods um, a couple of times, but how would you study these issues? You, you know, what, what would you think is either something that the field has just completely missed as a brilliant, you know, kind of methodological um, approach or something where you think, yeah, I'd quite like to do what other papers have done already, but for this particular country, this particular region, this particular cultural form, this particular um, social group. So I think there's maybe four um, discussion points to to conclude with. Otherwise, um, I think we're, we're just going to say uh, a couple of closing words. Laurie, thank you so much for taking part in this. It was, you know, kind of really... Uh, interesting and, and, and really informative. Well, thanks for having me. It was nice to, to have a, a chat about it. Um, I hope uh, we were not too abstract in the way we present things. So, yeah, don't hesitate to ask questions. You can always ask us question uh, in a way or in another. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a whole bunch of, of extra resources associated with this week's session as as well. And what we'll be doing uh, next week is thinking about the other side um, of culture, uh, which is cultural production. Um, And actually many of the themes that you've heard today are going to come up next week. So thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.